Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Again, welcome, welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church and our series that we're nearing the end of, The Songs of Jesus, a, a, a series in which we've been working through the, the book of Psalms and plugging in the playlist of the songs that both shaped Jesus' life and that Jesus came to satisfy. Hard to believe we, we reached last week Psalm 107 and only have about three more weeks in this series. Today, next week, Palm Sunday, Easter Sunday after that, we'll have a, a special psalm that we do on, a, on Good Friday. If you want to come to that celebration on uh, 7 o'clock on Good Friday, um, you're welcome to be here for that. But, but only three weeks left, and yet today we come to perhaps the most important psalm in the book. What's been called the core of not only the Jewish faith, but of the Christian faith as well. Because today we come to Psalm 110. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there and follow along with me as I read. Again, from Psalm 110, verses 1 to 7. This is God's Word. It says this, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth From Zion, your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, I ask that you would show us your son. I ask even now that that we would see him in all of his uniqueness that allowed him to uniquely play the role that you gave him in your beautiful story. I pray that seeing him our hearts would be warmed toward him, that our affections would be stirred for him. And that we would serve him. That he would even today be our 
king and our priest, which we need him to be so much. I pray it in the name of your one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, eHarmony has helpfully put together a list for their male clientele of the five must-haves every woman wants in their man. Super helpful if you're on the lookout. Wish I had this available to me when, when I was. Glad God, in his grace, worked it out anyway. But here's the list, and the top of it is solvency. I had to look that one up. I don't know who chose that as their word. Solvency, but basically it's the idea that in this recession-damaged age, a woman wants to know that her man can support himself, and if she gives him the chance that he's got at least a plan to support her too. Solvency. Number one. Second, though, number two is hygiene. Go figure. (laughs) That you got to clean up, it says. You got to clean up, clip it up, trim it down, and scrub it fresh. If that manly musk is going to have the impact you want it to. Solvency, hygiene. Third, believe it or not, is maturity. Women are generally not interested in dating 37-year-old boys who still live in their mom's homes, attics, or basements, who can't do their own laundry and spend far too much time playing Call of Duty. Who would have known? Solvency, hygiene, maturity. Fourth, a woman wants... A manly man. You get that in today's day and age still. It's on the list. That's a good thing, I think. A manly man. A woman wants a man who who has quite simply manned up, who leads and takes responsibility for his actions, and from time to time knows how to fix something. Manly man. And to cap it all off, eHarmony says that women are looking last for a partner, for someone who at the end of the day will listen to them as much as lead them. Interesting, right? That's the list, the five must-haves every man ought to know that every woman wants. Solvency, hygiene, Maturity, manliness, and partnership. Conspicuously absent, though, is what every relationship hinges on. Whether that man or woman will keep their promises. Because he could be the manliest man who ever walked the planet. He could have perfectly groomed chest hair. 
He could have moved out of his mom's house at the age of 18, been a millionaire by the time he was 24, but what good is it to you if in the end he leaves you high and dry? What good is it to you if in the end he doesn't keep his promises? It's like I remember a preacher named Alistair Begg. Some of you will know the name. I remember Alistair Begg saying when I was a kid that, that the one thing he was looking for, for uh, in a boy who would someday marry his little girl was that they would be the kind of boy who'd finish the milk in the cereal bowl. No, truly, that's what he said, who'd finish the milk in the cereal bowl. But his reason was because if they don't finish the milk in the cereal bowl, they're not going to finish the task of taking the bowl over to the sink. They're not going to finish the dishes. They're not going to go up and make their bed. They're not going to finish the job they get. And in the end, they're not going to finish the marriage. They start with my little girl. Because this is what relationships are all about. Whether your man, whether your woman will follow through on the promises they make. Which isn't too different when it comes to our relationship with God. Right? Because we may have a similar list of all sorts of things we want God to do and do for us. All good things, maybe right things, maybe, sometimes, maybe wrong things. We may have our list, but what difference does it make if at the end of the day we have a God who doesn't follow through with his promises? Which is what Psalm 110 is actually all about. How in fact, that's precisely the type of God we have. Who follows through, and not only follows through, but follows through in a way we couldn't even imagine. If you've been with us, you've seen that really there is a promise that lies behind the entire book of Psalms. From way back in the beginning, in Psalms 1 and 2, where we learned that the the book of Psalms is what? It's all about getting God's people into God's Word and God's Word into God's people, Psalm 1. Why? Because Psalm 2, God's Word is all about the promise of God's forever King. It's all about a promise, the promise of a a coming king, a coming Messiah who would do for God's people what David, the one that promise was made to, could never do for them himself. A promise that lies behind the whole of the psalm. And we've gone through the pits with that promise in the background. We've gone all the way, followed God's people all the way into exile with that promise in the background. And now, in book five of the Psalms, have followed them all the way back to the promised land. But what we learned last time is that 
the reason we've gotten back to the promised land, if you go back and read Psalm 107, the reason we're back in the promised land or God's people had a chance of coming back to the promised land was not because of the promised king, but because God was king. And God could do what all of their kings couldn't, what all of their kings didn't. The question, though, on the table is still, though, what about the promise? Because in some sense, God's people, the fate of God's people, was wrapped up with the fate of their king. And coming back to the land, if this promise was somehow not secure, what was there to keep them from getting kicked out again. As the king goes, so goes the people. And without a king, the king that God promised to them, as God promised them, without the king, they were at risk of wandering off again. And so now, even back in the land, the matter of this king is re- introduced because while back in the land God wasn't done with the promise which is what again Psalm 110 is all about and interestingly it's told on the lips of David himself a king the promise of a king, that God was still going to bring it about, the promise of a king who would someday, for whom God would someday fight. But the promise also of a priest who someday would fight for God. This is the interesting part of how God brings us back to the promise he made and shows how this is going to take place in a way that will never be undone again. That that king that was promised long ago would be first a king for whom God himself would fight and second a priest who would someday fight for God. First, that he'd be a king for whom God would fight. And this is in those first three verses where, where it kicks off in, in verse 1, saying that the Lord, David says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And you cannot miss the significance of this verse. The writers of the New Testament didn't, and so we can as well. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Because this is a declaration of God. That, that's king, this king who, who, who the story as it started was chosen by God's people, if you remember. They wanted to be like the nations around you. And yet here, God is declaring that one day I'll choose the king, chosen like David after Saul, but one day I'll choose him, but not only choose him, I will exalt him if someday as much as he will someday be rejected by man. 
I will put him at my right hand. Not just on a throne on earth, but I will lift him up to reign from on high. Because he'll be a king like none other. And in that, God is saying that while he will be a king and you're expecting a son of David, the idea here is he will be more. He has to be more. Because every other king fails. It's only God who could be the king that we needed. And so David, looking, reflecting on the promise that was made to him back in 2 Samuel 7, reflecting on the promise and looking ahead and wondering what if his sons would be able to fulfill this role says, if this is going to happen, if this is going to happen, which it has to happen because God is a God who keeps his promises, but if this is ever going to be true, what kind of a king would it be? A king who doesn't only come from my sin-struck life, but one who just as much comes from outside of it. I don't think he knew how it worked, how it was going to work. I think David knew the implications. That it had to be something more. It had to be something more. And if it was going to happen, it would have to be a king for whom God would fight. Not because David, God didn't fight for David. God called David to fight for him. And as much as David pled for God to fight for him over and over again, essentially God was fighting for what? He was fighting because he made a commitment to David. But here, this is something different. Exalted on high to God's right hand. For his own right. Who is this? Who is this king? Because he's not like a king that David knew. not like a king that David knew in himself. And I doubt at the end of his life when he was thinking about who was going to take the throne, I doubt it was a king he saw in any of his sons. Not Absalom. You remember the story? Not Absalom. Absalom exalted himself to the throne. Eventually died because of it. It wasn't, it wasn't the sons who, who came after, who, who fought in, the, in, in that way, and, and maybe he hoped that it would be Solomon. But we know better. The whole story of Solomon speaks against this. For all that might have been wrapped up in him, for all that Solomon could have been, it turned out that he wasn't. Who is this king for whom God will fight? Second, we need to look at who is this king who would be a priest who would fight for God? Not only does God say, sit at my right hand, be the king exalted to my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He says in one of the most interesting verses in the Old Testament, 
The Lord has sworn, verse 4, and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is important because just think, think like David would think for a moment. Put yourself in his shoes. In, in, in David's day, there were no kings who served likewise as priests. It wasn't allowed in the Israelite system. It, w- it wasn't even possible. Why? Because a king was to come from the line of Judah, where priests came from the line of Judah's brother, Levi. And you couldn't possibly come from both. And the last guy who tried to bring both of these offices under one tent reaped the reward for it when God kicked him off the throne. That's what happened to Saul, right? David would have known this more than anybody. Saul was was the king, was supposed to be God's king, and for a while followed God and served under God. But eventually got caught. Why? He got caught because going into battle, he forgot about Samuel and started offering sacrifices for himself. Now, quite convenient for Saul, he got to keep the proceeds in the process, right? But for that very transgression of the office he had been established in, God stripped the throne from him. And David knew this. So why here, when he's trying to come to grips with the promise that God gave him way back in 2 Samuel 7, that in his line, from his, from his, own, his own offspring, would come a, 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 a king to rule forever on the throne of David, why does he here picture that king also as a priest? It's strange for us. We don't work in these, in these, um, we don't work in these uh, categories. But think about it for us, right? We live in the good old republic of the U.S. of A., right? We, we live in the democratic state of America. And, and like all of our forebears in that tradition, we have seen that it is important in government to keep things separate. You don't put the legislators with the executives and invest that power in one person, right? Why? Because we've seen that go bad in history. We've seen what that looks like in the Hitlers and the Stalins of the world. We've seen what happens. Millions die. It ain't a good thing. So you keep it separate in order to produce a system of checks and balances, like, just think about it. Would you ever want Trump to have control over the Congress? And maybe he does to an extent or has gotten that in some way. But that's not a good thing, whether you're a Trump supporter or not. 
And if that's too much to handle, think of Obama on the other side. Do you, would you ever want the president of the United States, do you ever want Obama being over both the, the, the executive branch of government as well as the judiciary? This doesn't lead to something good because we know the corruption of our own hearts. And yet why, in looking forward and saying it has to be something, God has to come through, he has to bring to pass what he's promised to his, his, his king. He's got to bring true, bring it true. Why looking into the future? Does David here see one who will both be a king for whom God will fight as well as one who will be a priest who will fight for God. I think because David knew as much as we may know in our hearts that as long as we have to keep these things separate, as long as we have to protect the system from those in the system, we are not fully living under the kingdom of God. Things are still not the way they're supposed to be. And so looking into the future, David sees a day when the office of priest, which involves our relationship with God, and the office of king, which was all about our relationships to each other, are collapsed into one individual who would finally bring God's reign to pass. Both for God's people, this is what makes possible, verses 1 to 3, where his people offer themselves freely in the day of his power in holy garments, but also makes possible what comes in verses 4 and following, that this individual would be the one to carry out justice on God's enemies. That great David's greater son would not only build the temple, but be the one to serve in the temple like David never could. And the only piece that David missed was that when David's greater son showed up, he would also be the temple. And David looks back and says, I can't find someone like that in the Levitical priesthood. It doesn't work in this in this in this era since Abraham was called out of the land of his fathers. But there was one before 
Abraham started multiplying and Judah and Levi showed up. There was one figure in the Old Testament that, that, that David latched onto, seems to have latched onto in his reflection of what, what God must do if this is ever going to turn right. There's one figure in the Old Testament in which David saw these coming together in this man named Melchizedek. He's only mentioned a handful of times in the Bible. Back in Genesis 14, where he's introduced for the first time, here in Psalm 110, and where he is finally made much of in the book of Hebrews. But in this man who's described in Genesis 14 as both a king of a city of Salem, which is the the city that eventually came to be known as Jerusalem. In this man, he found not only a king of Salem, but a priest of God Most High. One who both had the office of protecting his people and carrying out justice on their behalf. And the author of Hebrews makes much of this because the individual to whom David was looking forward was none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus points this out himself, pointing back to this passage in Matthew 22, you can see the parallels in in the Gospel of Mark, in the Gospel of Luke. After a number of questions are thrown at Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar and about the resurrection to come and finally about what is the greatest commandment under God, Jesus asks his interrogators a question of their own. And the question is this, in Matthew 22, he says, while they were gathered together, he asked them simply, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the obvious answer, he is the son of David. But in reply, Jesus asked this, how is he then, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at your, my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If I then, if then David calls him Lord, how is he David's son? It says from that point forward, the Tuesday before his crucifixion, no one again asked him anything. And the people were amazed. Peter picks up on it again after the resurrection. Explains in Acts chapter 2 that being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to Jesus, that, that, that to David, that 
he would set one of David's descendants on David's throne, that he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, Peter says, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing today. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel Peter says, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Because God is the type of God that follows through with his promises. God is the type of God who wouldn't leave his world in a state in which these things had to remain separate, in which which our relationship with God was a different thing from our relationship with each other, and that eventually the answer to all of the mess, all of the mess inside of us and outside, is that one person would show up to do what we couldn't to do what David couldn't, to do what none of David's sons could, to bring us back to God and in the process bring us closer together than we ever were before. One who would be, yes, David's son, but in another sense, so much more. For us, though, it, this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, it really leaves only two questions on the table. And the first is one that everyone has to face at some time or another, whether they face it here in life or they have to face it on the other side of the curtain. And the question, as it was put by a a, a preacher back uh, a ways back in in Cambridge, England, uh, a man by the name of Charles Simeon, was this. What think ye of Christ? That you have to come to grips with this. That you are either leaving yourself in a world or, or, or condemning yourself to a world where these things stay separate and are never resolved and you will go into eternity with your relationships broken with people and broken with God or you have to make sense of the only one who could bring them together. The only one who can serve in both ways. Because God knows you're not the replacement for David. And God knows I'm not. That you can live all you want, but you've got to make sense of Jesus. And if he's in some ways not at the center of life, 
you can't move on until you settle that question. Of what do you think about Jesus? And do you know him in this way? Do you know him as both king and priest, Lord and Christ, crucified, raised again, and sat down at the right hand of God on high? But then the question after that, as again, Charles Simeon put it, is not just, what do you think of Christ? It's to what measure does your life resemble his? And we go all off on the solvency of life or our life's partner. Sometimes on the hygiene of life's partner. We go all bent out of shape, maybe on manliness or womanliness, whether ours or theirs. But the center of relationships is all about whether people keep their promises, whether relationships with God or relationships with others. Every relationship is built on this, whether people keep their promises. And rather than the manliness of life or the hygiene of life or the solvency of life, we ought to be asking the question, how much do we resemble God when it comes to keeping our promises? Because God is a promise-keeping God. And those who know God know the power of keeping promises. We break promises because we're trying to be kings ourselves. We're trying to be the priests of our own lives. But under Jesus, we're freed up to, to keep promises in a way we can't keep them before. And on top of it, given the power to do so. The question, though, is are we keeping promises? Are we keeping promises to your kids you know, there's an inherent promise relationship between a, a, a parent and their kid to protect and grow and, and nurture. To stay on the side of Jesus even when your kids don't. Because you know for your kids that that's the only side in which they can win. If they come back to Jesus. There's, there's a promise inherent in the parent child relationship. There's a, a promise inherent in the man-woman relationship. A fidelity and faithfulness to say, I'm sticking it out with you through thick and thin. I was reading this week about uh, an article about a woman, an 88-year-old woman, who got ticked off at her husband because he came and stepped on her floor that she just mopped. She took out the family gun and shot him in the arm. And the, this, the story was called in. It was called in by an officer, and, and, and the, the station asked, have you apprehended the woman? And he said, no, not yet. The floor is still wet. <laughs> there is, though, a promise relationship 
between husband and wife. Till death do us part, thicker or thin, to always be growing together and honoring more than just ourselves. How much in your relationship or pursuit of another do you resemble your promise-keeping God? How much do our promises and commitments to one another even in this body, the commitment that Macy and Stefan made today, how much do we resemble our promise-keeping God? I pray that under Christ, that as we come to see him as priest, the one who resolves the relationship with the one who made us and then reigns over us as a king. I pray that our lives would begin to reflect more than ever the life we know in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're coming up to a season where we get to remember what Jesus did as our great high priest. But how you didn't leave him there. From the grave, he rose again from the dead. And how from the 40 days he continued to show himself to his followers, you then raised him up and seated him on high at your right hand in a way that established him as the long-awaited great David's greater son. I pray, Lord, that insofar as we are not living in line with his lordship and his being our Christ. I pray today that you would even use your word, use your people, and call us into closer relationship with yourself. Because Jesus made it possible and I pray we would want nothing less. In his name I pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.